the joy and blessing that we each feel by being able to be sufficiently privileged to gather together this morning is truly stupendous and marvelous indeed. Having been sufficiently blessed to be able to come together this Lord's Day morning and make consideration of various acts that our Heavenly Father has commanded to offer pleasing worship unto Him. As always, we're certainly appreciative and thankful for the membership here at Pippin that things are as well with us as it is that we can be here today and also for visitors who've come our way. For you, we especially would like to extend a cordial invitation to come back at any and every opportunity that you might have. As we make consideration of this portion of our worship today, I would direct your attention to the opening chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 3. As you might well tell from the title, being Beatitudes Part 1, we will, beginning in this lesson, undertake a series of studies on the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount. As we understand, those are presented to us in verses 3 through 12 of Matthew 5, and beginning today and continuing likely for the next two Sundays, we will look at various aspects of these Beatitudes and use them to enrich our lives by listening so attentively to what the Lord had to say so, so long in the past now. By way of introduction, if I could direct your attention to the section of Scripture in which these Beatitudes are found. This is that well-known section, the Sermon on the Mount. Early on in Jesus' ministry, He, in fact, found the opportunity to present one of the most marvelous and fantastic of extended sermons found anywhere in the Word of God. There are certain passages that are moving and compelling in their nature. There's the great intercessory prayer on the night before he was crucified in John 17. There's that very moving episode in which, in Matthew 13, he taught about the parables and, and urged all of us to be devoted servants of his. However, all of those are rivaled by the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus expounded in plainness and greatness the practicality of those matters that would describe servanthood in His kingdom. In many ways, it was so distinct from service underneath the law of Moses. In so many ways, it was distinct from what the Pharisees perceived and the Sadducees desired. What our Lord taught touched the heart. Outward service was simply insufficient as proper service unto Him. It must be service that emanates from the fullness of one's heartfelt appreciation for what God has accomplished through the saving grace of His Son. With thoughts like that in mind, just notice in a quick fashion some of the marvelous things found in this Sermon on the Mount. For instance, following the Beatitudes, we read in verses 13 to 16 of Matthew 5, the great necessity of practical daily living for Jesus. Let your light so shine before men, he would say, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And in that same context, you and I learn we ought to be cities set on a hill, the salt of the earth, and a light that is never hidden in greatness by expounding the illuminance of the nature of Jesus. Later in chapter 5, we learn the character of sexual sin, how that even when a man lusts upon a woman in looking after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. Time and again, Jesus reminded us of our speech and our language. He even at one point said, Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Matthew 5, verse 37. As that chapter ends, he even reminds us that toward those who would be antagonistic to us, our enemies, he said, Love them. Love them. As chapter 6 opens, he addresses religion. 
It's often been said that human beings are religious creatures. We can't do anything about that. We're made that way. The matter is, how does that religion present itself? Is it in truth? Jesus taught in Matthew 6, when you fast, when you give, and when you pray, don't do it just to be seen of men. Don't give, don't fast, don't pray just so that others will hear and watch what you're doing. For if you do that, that's your reward. Rather, do it from a heartfelt way, understanding the audience is in heaven. In Matthew 6, what about the nature of forgiveness? God won't forgive us unless we are willing to forgive those that have trespassed against us. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. And do we not read about the urgency of priorities? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Matthew 6, 24 to 33. Notice the practicality here. As those listen to what our Savior taught on this occasion, my suspicion is that many of them had their mouths drop open in disbelief at how practical and vital these matters are in service to God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, hypocrisy. Hasn't that been a continuing matter of problems for the human family? When a person, in fact, says or preaches one thing, but then lives in a different way, hypocrisy. Jesus said in verses 1 to 6 of Matthew 7, Before you strive to pull out that speck out of someone else's eye, first remove the log from your own. Hypocrisy. We also see in verses 7 through 11 the urgency of prayer. To live a life in which we can ask and seek and knock and know that the Heavenly Father will hear us and also will answer us. In verses 21 to 23, the imperative recognition that not everyone that claims Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is a fact that one must do the bidding of our Heavenly Father and follow through in true devoted service. Merely calling His name is not sufficient. And finally, verses 24 to the end of the chapter reminds us about that famous story of the wise man on the one hand and the foolish man on the other. What is it that distinguished them? The foolish man heard but didn't do anything. The wise man not only heard but followed through by doing that which was commanded. May you and I ever be wise as we listen to the statements of Scripture and implement them at once in the character of our lives. The Sermon on the Mount. Needless to say, one could preach for years and never exhaust the fullness of the Sermon on the Mount. We, of course, will turn our attention to the Beatitudes. In verses 3 through 12 of Matthew 5, let's begin to notice somewhat more fully and carefully the teachings found in these short little statements, but nonetheless penetrating, profound, and meaningful. As I ask you to notice that, we have one more set of statements that might do us well as we make preparation to look more carefully at the Beatitudes. The structure of these Beatitudes is very similar. Each one of them begins with a special word, and it continues by also using another set of words along its presentation. Might I ask you to notice the following comments? First of all, why do we employ the word Beatitude with respect to these? The word beatitude by itself does not occur in the scriptures anywhere. But yet, that word has come to be used to describe these opening pronouncements of the Sermon on the Mount. We might note what the definition of that word is. The word beatitude simply means perfect blessedness or perfect happiness. 
From time to time, we may hear that word used in common language as something being described as a beatitude or an attitude corresponding to that. Notice, though, that with the capital letter beginning it, that is used to identify these nine statements that open the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus on this occasion was not far into his earthly ministry, and yet he chooses on an occasion to find himself on a mountain, and his disciples had come to him. As they began to listen, Jesus expounded the following Sermon on the Mount that begins with this set of Beatitudes. That word blessed that begins each one of these is a word that means happy or fortunate. It is a word, you see, that has behind it the idea of being a very desirable state of being. In other words, it's a very good thing to consider the state or estate identified by these Beatitudes and to seek at once to bring oneself into being the very same as is here described. I might make mention, though, that it seems from the New Testament that there's more behind this than just the word happy. We often, in fact, realize that there are those wicked in our world who appear to be happy, but that happiness is only a veneer. It is no more than skin deep because they have failed to appreciate the ultimate nature that they are immortal spirits that shall stand before the God of heaven in judgment. And for that they have made no preparation and seem to be making none. This word blessed that occurs here is used two times in the New Testament to describe God himself. In 1 Timothy 1, we notice there that God is described as being blessedly glorious. God is blessed and it's the same Greek word that's used here. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, the same adjective is used again. The only blessed potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus is referred to as blessed. It would thus seem that this usage of the word here means that when you and I implement these things in our lives, we are so constructing our life and choosing to live as to be not only happy here, but ultimately pleasing to God. And that is far more important. And it's far more essential. With those kinds of ideas stated, one more thing to note. Each of these Beatitudes will have the word for, F-O-R, couched about its middle point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word for means because. In essence, because of. And thus, with ideas like that, we notice reasons are thus given for the statement of fortune or statement of blessing described in each one. And with that said, let's look at the first of these Beatitudes. It's the one found in verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We immediately observe that here is this statement of blessedness or happiness or greatness and desire pronounced upon those that are poor in spirit. The word poor, even as we are well aware of in our world, is certainly also true in the Holy Scriptures. That word can be used in a variety of ways. It always means those destitute of something. Now, in many instances, it's those that are destitute of wealth, physically, destitute of money in some way. That is to say, they're described as physically poor. But on other occasions, those that are destitute of other things are said to be poor. Those that are destitute of position, those that are destitute of influence or prestige or power, they also are poor in regard to and in respect to the fact that others tend to look upon them as being those unworthy of honor 
as those unworthy of influence or prestige. The word poor can occasionally be used in that fashion as well. It is interesting to notice here, Jesus leaves us not to wonder what type poor he's discussing, for he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He isn't especially discussing on this occasion those that are physically and monetarily poor. Those that are poor in spirit. A blessing, a fortunate state is pronounced upon them. Might we inquire as to the character of what that means? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We each understand that we are immortal spirits. A human being is not without such. What then does Jesus mean when he says that there's a blessing on those that are destitute or lacking in spirit? Maybe we can chase some scriptures or put some various passages together and reach a conclusion on that point. Notice that I've listed for you something to consider. The word spirit, of course, on many instances has relation to the Holy Spirit, but on many other instances it seems to relate to the nature of the heart. For example, consider Psalm 51, verse number 17, if you would. On that occasion, the great David, that man who had engaged in adultery and murder, came to realize by the confrontation with Nathan that he had sinned against God. In regard to that fact, he responded with words in Psalm 51, and especially note verse 17. A broken and contrite heart, those that offer the sacrifices of spirit, the two words seem to be used in a very synonymous fashion. Notice also in Psalm 143, excuse me, verse number 4, a similar statement wherein the spirit and the heart are used interchangeably. They are used in description of the same end or the same entity. Is it not then the case that if that were the usage and if that be the case concerning the word spirit here, Jesus is in essence pronouncing a blessing on the poor in spirit, namely the lowly in heart, namely those that are humble. Blessed are those that are lowly in heart, those that are, have a characteristic or a disposition of humility. Inasmuch as Jesus makes that pronouncement, notice that it does harmonize so well then with Proverbs 29, verse 23. For a similar blessing was pronounced in the, by Solomon himself in the Proverbs. Inasmuch as it relates to those that would be humble in spirit, lowly in heart, for they are the ones whom God finds blessed. With ideas like that in mind, would it not be easy to at least ask, about how important humility is. It is usually, in fact, uniformly the case that the Bible endorses humility, doesn't it? Who is it that God hears? Psalm 138, verse 6. It's the humble. And who is it that we read of in Proverbs 16, 19 that are those in a better state? In fact, it's those that are humble. Better it is, Solomon said, to be lowly, rather than to have much in a wide house, but yet to be proud. You see, we understand that there is something great to be said about Jesus' statement of blessing on the poor in spirit here. Maybe two more passages to consider. In Proverbs 27, 2, we ought not boast things of ourselves. That is, in arrogance to lift ourselves up, but he says if others do that of us, that's a very different matter. When others praise thee, consider it a blessing. When we, though in arrogance and pride, heap the blessings upon ourselves, we do greatly err.
and maybe finally in James 4, verses 6 and 10, humble yourselves on the side of the Lord, and what? He shall lift thee up. We maybe see the point that when we choose to arrogantly and pridefully lift ourselves up, it is then that we find ourselves unlikely to humbly submit to the teachings of the Bible. We think we know more than God does. We're unwilling to accept the straightforward commandments of His Scriptures and think that we know better than He and are unwilling to prostrately fall before the proclamations of Scripture. It's no wonder in that vein the Lord pronounces a blessing on those that are poor in spirit. For they are humbly willing to say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It is not that they wish to force God to do things their way. It is not that they choose rather to arrogantly refuse to bow before him. They are far more like Saul who again would say, and who like Isaiah would say, Lord, here am I, send me. Isaiah 6 verse 8. Those kinds of thoughts challenge us to perhaps see a few other comments about this text. The poor in spirit. Notice that they are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's that word for. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why, Lord? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it a beautiful thing to behold some of what the Lord states here? That statement again of humility. We are certainly not saying that humility alone is enough to lead a person to be saved. You and I may know many individuals in the world who have a very noted amount of humility. But yet, if humility is not directed toward the fulfillment of Scripture and willing to bow humbly before what God has declared, then obedience is still lacking. But it's still safe to say that humility, to submit to what God has commanded, is needed. And Jesus taught that in Matthew 18, verses 2, 3, and 4. On that occasion, a little child was brought before him. And Jesus made a pronouncement on the greatness of that little child. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice the humility needed. A person like that little child, Jesus said, must become humble, willing to simply do what God has commanded without trying to usurp his own authority of demanding always why. For is it not still the case that we walk by faith and not by sight? 2 Corinthians 5, 7. It's certainly fair to note that the humble are far more likely than to be responsive to the commandments of the Bible. We live in an age, and we know this well, when the Bible that we so highly cherish is by so many others called so greatly into blasphemous question. When it's looked upon as an old book of sayings from some ancient person long, long ago, it's no longer modern for our day, they tell us. It's no longer pertinent and right to describe life in the 21st century, we are told. And to that we say, oh, how foolish and deluded those thoughts are. The old Jerusalem gospel is needed for every person in every age. We still need it today as sorely as they of the first century. And it shall be needed sorely as long as the world shall last. You see, only here do we find the words of life, John 6, verses 63 and following. Only here do we find that very matter that can answer the deepest questions of life. And in humility and in lowliness of heart, Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, we should humbly bow before it and let it teach us what we need to do and not read into it what we wish that it were to say. 
Those kinds of thoughts challenge us to appreciate the need to be poor in spirit, to be those of a disposition of lowliness, understanding how needful that is. I've listed some examples for us to each consider. Those who were humble on one occasion, those who were not on others. Consider first that good example of Acts 8, 26-40. There we read about a man riding in a chariot going back to Ethiopia. He was humble enough to ask Philip, How can I understand it unless some man guide me? It wasn't his desire to arrogantly say, Well, I know what it says and I don't need to be taught. Isn't it sad when there are those who have that attitude? They don't care what the Bible really says. They think they know enough about it. And sadly enough, they shall stand before God and have to admit then that they didn't know nearly what they should have. But that eunuch in all honesty and kindness said, I would desire that some man teach me. Some man show me and guide me. May we not have an earnest and lowly heart like that? Notice how that contrasts to others like Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. Here was a man who at times did have some good characteristics. But on the occasion of this chapter, it was not a pretty picture. He was not of the tribe of Levi, and hence was not one who could legitimately enter the temple and offer incense sacrifices to God. And yet, due to his arrogant and prideful attitude, on one occasion he entered the temple and proceeded to offer incense sacrifice to God, even though he was not authorized to do so. When the priests on that occasion confronted him, he refused to leave. He demanded that he be able to stay and offer those sacrifices. While they were talking to him, leprosy broke out on his forehead. He was a leper until the day he died. God had something to say about the prideful and arrogant disposition that caused him to be unwilling to submit to the commandments that he was not authorized to offer that that's the incense offering. On another occasion, Jesus in Luke 18 taught about a publican and a Pharisee who each prayed. And the Pharisee prayed, I thank God I'm not like that publican. And I offer tithes and sacrifices just as commanded. He felt exactly right before God in his heart. But yet the Lord said, which one went down to his house justified? Because notice the publican had prayed, God be merciful to me a sinner. And wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. One was lowly, humble, and one was not. Jesus said that the Pharisee was the one that was not justified, but the publican was. Those kinds of teachings and those kinds of texts remind us that Jesus said in John 5 verse 40, speaking about those of his own day, that he himself had the words of life, but you will not come to me. You see, they thought they had all the answers and they thought that they knew what God wanted and thus they were unwilling to come to Jesus. And might we say today that if we find ourselves in that state, thinking that we know enough and that we have the answers and are unwilling to come to Him, we'll die lost. It's an absolute certainty. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14 verse 6. Blessed then are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May we each strive to have a poor spirit, to be lowly in heart, humble in our disposition toward the teachings of the Bible. But then there's a second of these beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's shed some light and some discussion upon the second of these beatitudes. 
listening to again what our Savior had to teach on the point of mourning. Might we begin by observing that the word mourn, by its very definition, means to be sad, to experience sorrow, to mourn. Thus, there is no easy way to turn that word into meaning anything other than what it appears to mean. And we might notice that that's not a good idea with regard to Scripture usually. The God of heaven said what he meant, and he meant what he said. What did Jesus then mean when he pronounced a blessing upon those who mourn? Quite often in the Bible, we easily see people who mourn over easily understandable matters. For instance, when David's son Absalom was slain, it is said that David mourned over him. 2 Samuel 19. And you and I well know that when a loved one passes away, we may well feel grief and heart and great sorrow of spirit, understanding that we are at a loss. That may be well a time in which we mourn. But that isn't the only way in which the word can be utilized or employed. Jesus is here not pronouncing a blessing on those who lose, who lose loved ones and those who experience great traumatic grief in life. It is something different than that. For notice, there is another way in which that word is used. It is often used to describe that state or that attitude in response to sin, in response to iniquity. It is urged throughout both Old and New Testament that you and I should bewail and mourn in regard to sin. That is to say, we should appreciate its magnitude, how horrible and awful it is, and it should bring us to a state of mournfulness when we come to recognize its existence, whether that be in our lives or in the lives of others. In Jeremiah 12, verse 4, and also in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21, we have the following array of concepts. God, speaking through Jeremiah, urged him to appreciate the sinfulness of Judah and to mourn for it. He said the land will mourn in response to its wickedness. Notice there the mourning had nothing to do with the loss of a loved one, for example, or another traumatic experience in life. It was the fact that the land is full of sin, and thus it is in a dire state of mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2 again, as Paul addressed the congregation in Corinth, there was a significant problem in that church in that there was fornication among the members, especially one person in, that Paul had in mind. But however, the congregation also had another difficulty in that Paul said you should have mourned over that sin, but yet you didn't. You were puffed up in pride and haughtiness. But it is significant. Paul said you should have mourned. In 2 Corinthians 12, 21, again with regard to the same congregation, when Paul said, when I come to visit, it's my hope that I shall not have to bewail, that is to say mourn, the state of sinful affairs there. Thus the word is often used with regard to the attitude and disposition toward sinfulness, toward iniquity. With that thought in mind, what does it say about you and me? It says, I should mourn when I realize there's sin in my life. And you should mourn when you find sin in your own. And we each should, in fact, be greatly bothered when we observe it in the lives of others. And that's the reason in love that we exhort others when we observe sin in their life. James 5, verses 19 and 20. Two, snatch them, if you will, from the fiery pits of hell. 
so that they would come back to a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father. In fact, we see the interesting state. Here, blessed are those that mourn. When you and I appreciate sin and its magnitude, and we bewail that fact, why is there a blessing? Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you and I have a mournful attitude towards sin, it's not difficult to realize that we would seek at once to find out the character by which that sin can be removed, remitted, forgiven, and eliminated. And of course, that's only in the blood of Jesus. That's only in the wonderful sacrifice at Calvary and obedience to the commandments of God. And thus, when we mourn over sin and we make proper correspondence of that in our life by taking care of it, we'll obey the gospel. And we will live faithfully till death, Revelation 2.12. All the while, we understand that that sin is such that when Jesus said that those who, are more, who mourn will be comforted, Notice that word means cheered up, consoled. Might I ask, in the New Testament, when did that eunuch rejoice? When he'd obeyed the gospel. Why did he rejoice? Because his sins were no more. Have not you and I as Christians been in a similar situation to that? When we were baptized and the sins were gone, we were happy and rejoicing because of that very fact. That's what he meant when he said that the mournful shall be comforted. They'll be cheered up. It is the case, perhaps, that one final point might be noted. How vital and how essential it is that we never lose sight of how great the magnitude of sin truly is. It's not a matter who's a light thing. It's not a matter that's a trivial thing. It's not a matter to pass over lightly. It is so severe that it sent the Son of God to Calvary. It's so severe that he, in fact, had a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. And he underwent a scourging in John 19.1. It's so severe that he had nails driven in his feet and his hands. And it's so severe that he died that day. When the Lord declared, it is finished in John 19 verse 30, what was finished was a plan of salvation had been put in place. And thanks be unto God that that was the case. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. But then in the third place, the next beatitude in the list has to do with those that are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek, as it's utilized here and often throughout the sacred volume, is a word that means to be gentle, to be mild and friendly, to have a disposition that is such that it is strong, but yet gentle. It is somewhat a sad thing that the nature of meekness is a bit misapprehended from time to time. For you see, the nature of meekness does not mean weakness. A person who is meek is not weak. That person, however, though strong in character, is a person of a gentle disposition and able to deal well with others. But the person is not weak. I've listed some things for our mutual consideration. It's certain that meekness has at least a first cousin of humbleness, and so the first and third beatitudes are at least a bit similar in one regard. But might I suggest, due to what follows in the third one, they are significantly different. That first one often had to do with things spiritual and characters we might know. But this third one, inasmuch as it relates to the inheritance of earth, seems to be far more physical in its characteristic. Blessed are the meek 
for they shall inherit the earth. Would you consider with me some of the things that might well be said about that degree of meekness? That person who is meek in a physical way is a person, you see, who may own very little of this earth. That is to say, the person might be regarded as poor physically, but nonetheless, as being meek, we might note that person is contented with what he or she has and has a disposition of happiness with what is possessed. That type person has a degree of happiness and fortune far greater than the person that we're going to describe next. For what if a person is such that he does not have that degree of meekness? That type person, you see, is far different. That person is ever desirous, it would seem, of having more. That is a person who not only does not inherit the earth, the earth owns him. Note the distinction. Never able to acquire enough. Never satisfied with the degree of contentment before him. Ever anxious, despite the nature of meekness, to have more and more. It should be our desire to be meek with regard to the fact you see a gentle spirit of disposition a spirit in which we appreciate the strength of character able to be provided by God, but not one who goes beyond that which God has decreed, and certainly not one who is ever desirous of discontentment. How often do we find that in the Scriptures we learn that that person who is not of that position is owned by what is around him, owned by the possessions that he has or doesn't have. On one occasion, we find Paul with his teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. He said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. If we only pause at that point, we notice that a great sense of urgency was brought upon Timothy by the nature of, Timothy, understand that the physical things in this life, though many of them now are needful, and we need food, and we need other things like clothing, the pursuit of all those other things in terms of having love for it is a great error. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. In fact, eight verses later, in 1 Timothy 6.17, we find this charge. Charge them that would be rich. Notice, this is a direct commandment. Charge them that would be rich, that they fall into temptation and a snare. It is to be noted that they are thus to love the one and only God of heaven and to seek Him. Could we not say then in regard to this, that the Bible does help us see that it is the blessing of God for us to have a job and the blessing of God to provide for ourselves and our family. And it's entirely right to be appreciative and thankful for that, Ecclesiastes 5.18. But as we've just noted, when we divorce that from the thought of contentment and allow that to be the driving motivation of our life, we have lost the sense of what the third of the Beatitudes is teaching. For in that state, we will never inherit the nature of what earth has to offer in terms of the satisfaction available. Might we use Paul as our final example? There was a man who had given everything up for his pursuit of the gospel. And yet to the Philippian congregation in Philippians 4.11, he said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be continued. When we remember that Paul was in a Roman prison when he wrote that, he was a person who was destitute of much of what the world physically would have to offer, and yet 
He said he had learned to be content in whatsoever state he had found himself. We would do wise to ever thus appreciate the blessing on the meek, for it's still the case that they shall inherit the earth. Our lesson this morning has considered the first three of these Beatitudes. It would be wise for us to conclude our lesson with a brief summary statement and to challenge ourselves in regard to all three of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit that we should be humble, lowly and hard and ready ever to do the bidding of our God of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because the mournful state is described as those who appreciate the enormity of sin and strive at once to remedy that by obeying the commandments that can take that sin away. And finally, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meekness described as that gentle but yet strong disposition in which we can deal with others effectively and understand that even with regard to God's commands and the other things of a physical nature, we don't allow that to rule us and direct us and guide the absolute nature of our life. For it is still the case, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This morning, in terms of my life and yours, are your, is your spirit sufficiently poor that you find yourself in need of obeying the gospel this very morning? Are you prepared and ready at this time to mourn over the state of sin that exists in your life? If we could be of assistance to you as you obey the gospel initially in the acts of belief, repentance, confession, baptism, we'd be honored, happy, and rejoicing to help you. In fact, all things are ready. The baptismal waters are warm. We could aid you to take your confession and to baptize you into Jesus. If you have become a Christian, but you've lost sight of being mournful over sin, pure in spirit in terms of disposition, and meek in regard to your disposition in life, perhaps you have brought reproach to yourself and to the cause of Jesus. If you need to come back to your first love, would you not even do that? The opportunity is presented. If we could pray on your behalf today, you need to simply come forward and let us know that. We'd be happy to help you. If either of those things is a need of your life today, will you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?